Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thanks for that reminder from Amos chapter 6. Let justice roll like a river and righteousness like a mighty stream. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make it so here among us. We pray that we'd be a people who care for justice and righteousness. And we thank you that you are committed to producing justice and righteousness both in us as individuals and within us as a church. And we just pray that we would be tender before you, uh, moldable before you, uh, that we wouldn't resist you in any way, but that we would let you shape and transform us. Thank you for this amazing journey of walking with you and being transformed. And thank you that you are gentle with us and gracious with us. As we turn our attention to your word now, we pray that it would sit in authority over us and that we would take in what it has to say to us. And I pray, Lord, specifically that you would send your spirit uh, through your word now to apply the truth of your word into our lives. That we wouldn't be people, as James says, that just hear the word and then walk away and don't do what it says. Uh, That we would be people who hear it and then obey it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How are we doing? Everybody good? Good. Well, it's good to see you guys. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at the last half of Isaiah chapter 9 and some of chapter 10 and 11. So we're going to move through in that way. Now, we are in this section of Isaiah uh, that has been challenging, at least for me. I don't know if you've been with us through the weeks, but it's a section where God is speaking about his discipline of his people, his judgment of his people. And so there's some things that we need to take in a little bit hard. And as I've been thinking about uh, this, I've, I've been wondering if you find it hard as well. And I wonder if one of the reasons that we find it hard is because we're not really all that often used to speaking about God's discipline, about his judgment, that we like to talk about his love and his mercy and his grace, and those are good things. And somebody say amen. They will like talk about those things, but we may be a little less familiar with God's discipline, with his judgment. Uh, and we may not have fully thought through. I mean, I, get, I bet uh, and I hope that you've thought through sort of in a very nuanced way all the ways that God shows his love. I mean, I hope that's something you're seeing in your life, that you recognize a thousand different ways that God expresses his love, his mercy uh, into your life and into the lives of those around you. My guess is, if I were to take a survey, that most of us have not thought in as nuanced a way about his discipline, about a God who is completely and perfectly just and cares very much for holiness and righteousness. And so, you know, this section of Isaiah is really all about those aspects of who God is. And so I think they're, they're necessary for us. And as I was thinking about this section, uh, it, I think it relates to a story that I heard that I was thinking about. In, uh, let's see, what was the year? In 1962, at the height of the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis. You guys remember the Cuban Missile Crisis? Some of you do. Some of us weren't around yet then. The USS Beale. Do you know the story of the USS Beale? USS Beale is a, a warship in the United States fleet, and it is part of the blockade that surrounds Cuba during the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Cold War. And... In October of 1962, uh, the USS Beale started picking up things on its sonar, on its radar, right? And began to pick up the presence of a submarine, a Russian submarine, as it were. And this Russian submarine was inching closer and closer to the blockade. A little too close for comfort for the USS Beale. And so the captain of that ship did what a good captain does. He went to the protocol and said, all right, our job is to launch depth charges down. And these aren't live rounds. These are depth charges down on the Russian submarine. And the goal of launching those depth charges is to get that submarine to surface 
to get them to come up and acknowledge their presence and then get them to turn around and kind of get the heck out of Dodge, right? And so that's the idea. So the U.S. commander begins to launch those depth charges. Well, a mistake was made and the the Soviet commander of the submarine, the B-59, thought that what were being launched in were not depth charges, but live rounds. And he got furious. And so he commanded his, uh, his crew to arm the one live nuclear torpedo that existed in the B-59 and to launch it. Now, thankfully, protocol was, Russian protocol, was that all three commanders of the submarine had to affirm before a nuclear launch could be made. And Cooler heads prevailed when Victor, I'm going to get his name wrong, so I'm going to say it because I'm going to look at it here because I don't want to get it wrong because he's the hero of our story. Vasily Arkhipov. Anybody know any Vasily Arkhipovs? Me either. Vasily Arkhipov, second in command, his cooler head prevailed and he said no. He refused to affirm the command to launch this nuclear torpedo. And because he did, he said, we need to surface, we need to, get new, we need to get new orders from Moscow, we need to understand more what's going on before we launch this. And so eventually he cools the captain down, they do that, they rise up, they realize that what was being fired at them were not live rounds, and thankfully they head home. It's not until 40 years later that anyone even becomes aware that that incident occurred, other than the members of the crew on the ship, when documents became declassified. Now here's why I tell that story because it can be really dangerous to misunderstand the intentions of someone's actions, right? That Russian submarine commander almost started a nuclear war because he believed that live rounds were being fired at him. He misunderstood the actions of his counterpart. And I think often when it comes to God's discipline, we fail to understand uh, God's intentions in it, the intentions behind his actions of why he's doing what he's doing. And because we do, we encounter, I think, great danger in understanding what God is up to. When we fail to understand God's intentions, we can fail to understand what he's up to with his discipline. And failing to understand why God disciplines and how God disciplines can be greatly dangerous to us. Would you agree with that? So here's the deal. Last week or the last couple of weeks, we've really been talking about what God disciplines, right? So we talked a lot about justice and righteousness and what it looks like when we don't have justice and righteousness in our lives or in our midst corporately. And so because we were understanding uh, that God commands justice and righteousness of his people. And when it is, fails to be present, we saw what he does in response or what he is responding to. But what we really need to understand is not just what God res- do- responds to in terms of a failure of justice and righteousness, but also why he responds and how he responds. So what is God's discipline like? Let's think about it a little bit today. I wanna give you four things that are sort of lessons in why God disciplines and how he disciplines so that when that discipline is present in our life, we would recognize it. Now, here's the danger. Uh, The two errors that we tend to make when we think about God's discipline, right? The first error is that we would assume that God never disciplines his people. We, we think a lot about God as loving, he's merciful, he's gracious. We know that the blood of Jesus, if we're a follower of Christ, has covered our sins and therefore we've been spared from the eternal wrath of God. Would, would everybody say amen to that? Absolutely. And because that's true, sometimes we forget that in, even though we are spared from the eternal wrath of God and promise eternity with him, that doesn't mean God doesn't discipline us and judge us right in the here and now for sin that exists in our life. That disciplinary actions take place 
in our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you've read it before, in verse 30 and 31 and 32, Paul is actually writing to the Corinthians and he's saying, you're doing some things that don't please God. He says, in particular, you're taking the Lord's Supper in a way that's unworthy of him. You're not examining yourselves. You're just continuing in your sin and you're not worried at all about the fact that you're sort of eating the body of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ symbolically and you're just still continuing in these sin patterns. He says, when you do that, he says, that's sinful. God doesn't like that. And he says, as a result, many among you are sick and some have even died. In other words, he's saying God is disciplining you, even in a very strong way. God is disciplining you for failing to align yourself with what, with what he calls righteousness. So one mistake we can make is we can believe that God doesn't do that sort of thing. And if we believe doesn't God, God doesn't do that sort of thing, then whenever difficulties come into our life, we'll never identify them as his hand of discipline. We'll just identify them as something else. Do you see the danger of that? Church, do you see the danger of that? If God is disciplining us, as a good father, we want to identify. Now, I'll say this. A great comfort that you and I can take is because God's a good father, he doesn't discipline us and intend to make it a mystery. When, now, sometimes we can be hard-hearted. We can miss the fact that this is God's hand of discipline in our lives. We can miss that. But that's due to our own callousness. That's never due to God not making it plain that he's bringing discipline. Just like a good parent, when we discipline our kids, in the first service, I said, don't good parents discipline this way? And one kid in the front row went, no. But like good parents, right, we make it plain. When I discipline my kids, I don't make it a mystery what I'm disciplining them for. I don't go, I'm not gonna tell you what you did wrong, but you're grounded for two weeks, right? A good parent doesn't do that. A good parent goes, here's where you've been off, okay? And here's what I wanna correct. Here's what needs to change, right? God is merciful in that same way. When he disciplines us, he makes it plain what that discipline is for. Let me speak to the other error here. And it's not specifically what we're gonna address today, but the other error is the error of, anybody read the book of Job in the Old Testament? Job's friends in the book of Job. So Job is a righteous man. God declares him righteous. He says he's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing sinful. And yet God allows a lot of harmful things to come into his life, a lot of very difficult things. And when he does, all Job's friends surround him. Essentially, they come and they do well for a little while. They sit silently. They do what, what Jews call sitting shiva, which means sitting in silence. It's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to mourn with your friends when they're going through great difficulty. That's a great lesson for us. And they're great. For about seven days, they sit silently. And then after day seven, they all start to talk. And that's where they go wrong. They turn to Job and they say, Job, surely you have sin in your life. Surely you have done something that God is displeased with. There's no other reason that these difficulties could possibly be coming upon you. And Job's response is to say, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm righteous before the Lord, which is a bold claim, but the Lord affirmed that claim. So I haven't done anything wrong. So one of the dangers, if one of the dangers is, is believing that God would never, ever punish us, that discipline doesn't come and that it doesn't look like hard things coming into our life, if that's one error, the opposite error possibly is that we would assume that all things that are hard that come into our life are the result of sin in our lives. And that's not true either. Does that make sense, church? It's important that we understand that we have to live between those two tensions. Therefore, we have to ask God. The danger of believing that God would never discipline in this way is that we would have things going on in our life and we'd never ask God about it. We'd never ask him if there's any sin in our lives to search us and know us so that we might repent of those things and that he might be able to remove that hand of discipline, right? The other side of that is that we would assume that it's always the case and we would spend forever just going, I don't see any sin in my life, but it must be there. And we just keep 
you know, hovering and living in guilt and shame that God doesn't intend us to. So the hard part, the tension of this text that we're about to look at is that we can't ever say it's always one or it's always the other, but we have to be nimble in being able to be before the Lord and allow him to show us which it is. Okay, church? All right, so let's look. Four lessons that I want us to look at to help us understand why God disciplines and how he disciplines so that we might be more familiar with it and recognize it when it's taking place in our life. So we're gonna leave behind the Job scenario now, okay? Some of you might find yourself in a Job scenario right now. We're not really speaking about that. We're now speaking about the sin in our lives that causes God's hand of discipline to come into our lives and understanding more of the why and the how behind that. Okay, so the first thing that we see and the first lesson that we learned is in chapter nine. And I wanna, we're gonna look at verses, chapter nine, verse eight through chapter 10, verse four. And the first thing we see is such a simple truth. It's that God is committed to our righteousness. God is committed to our righteousness. So much so that he cares more about you and I becoming righteous than he cares about us being comfortable, than he cares, us, cares about us having things. He cares more about our righteousness than about any other thing in our lives. Now think about all the great blessings God has poured into your life and recognize that he cares about none of those things more than he cares about you being righteous. In fact, the death of Jesus on the cross makes no sense at all apart from the truth that God cares deeply about our righteousness because he sent his son to die in order to accomplish that righteousness in us. Now look at verse eight of chapter nine. It says this, it says, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel. Okay, so here's what we see. God has been speaking to Judah, the southern kingdom, up to this point. Now he's gonna talk, about, talk to Israel, the northern kingdom. So he's switching his audience and he's gonna talk about the northern kingdom now, Israel. And so he says, it will fall on Israel and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Okay, so the first thing that we see, there's four things in this little section that God says, okay, I'm gonna tell you, Israel, why it is that my hand of discipline is upon you. And there are things that are taking place in you that I am going to, I care so much about your righteousness that I'm gonna eliminate these things. And the first is this, they are proud and arrogant, Right? And so God loves righteousness, their righteousness so much that he is not going to allow them to stay in their, un, stay in their um, arrogance. And I don't know if you heard what he just said there, but essentially he said, Israel says the bricks have been torn down and the sycamores have been cut down, but we'll just build with dress stones and we'll just plant cedars, right? So cedars are better trees than sycamores and dress stones are better than bricks. So in other words, what Israel is saying is it doesn't really matter what God does to us by way of his discipline. We can get through it and we'll be, and we'll, through our own strength, we'll be better. We'll, we'll figure out a way to undo the effects of God's hands of discipline. Now you and I might sound, think that sounds ridiculous, but don't you know that you and I do that all the time? We ignore God's hand of discipline upon us and we say, I'm gonna figure out a way in my own strength to get through this hard time and I'm gonna make it work. I'm gonna figure out how to make my life better through my own effort without ever acknowledging perhaps God is disciplining us and we need to submit to that discipline. So that's the first thing. He says, look, I'm, 
I'm so committed to your righteousness. I'm just gonna, I'm going to continue to eliminate your sense of trusting yourself as being the right pathway for you. Then the second thing he does, look down at uh, verses 14 through 16. So just a few verses down, a little lower, he says this. He says, so the Lord cut off Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. So those are symbols. And now he's gonna tell us what those symbols are for. The elder and honored man is the head and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. So in other words, what he's saying is, Israel, your leaders, your prophets, your elders, those who are in charge, they have been leading you astray. And I'm gonna, essentially what he says, I'm gonna cut them off. I'm going to eliminate those leaders. So here's, I mean, honestly, good news for us is that God says, if your leaders are leading you astray, I won't allow them to be your leaders for long. That's how committed to your righteousness I am. I will remove people from positions of influence and authority over my people when they lead my people astray. That's the second thing he does that shows how committed he is to our righteousness. And the third is this, uh, verse 20. Chapter nine, verse 20. So now go down just a little bit further. And this one's gonna sound weird, okay, but stick with me, because again, it's another symbol that the prophets love to use symbols. So here's what he says. He says, they, meaning the, the people, they slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. And they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. That's weird, right? So here's what he's saying. He's painting an image and he's saying, Israel is never satisfied with what she has. In other words, what he's saying is when you fail to practice righteousness and my hand of discipline is upon you, I'm so committed to you becoming righteous that I won't allow you to feel satisfaction in your unrighteousness. I will always make you feel like there should be more, there's something more going on, there's something more I need of. Has anyone felt that? Where you're like, it doesn't matter how much wealth you amass, it doesn't matter how much material stuff you amass, it doesn't matter how many people like you, how much popularity you have, it doesn't matter how successful you are in school, it just, none of it seems to satisfy. And the reason it doesn't satisfy is because when all those things come without righteousness, they absolutely cannot satisfy. He's painting the image by saying, imagine, you can imagine like a, a, a large piece of meat, essentially. And he's saying they slice on the right and they get all their stuff from there. And then they're still not satisfied. They're still hungry. So then they take from the left side. In other words, they're just, they're just getting everything they can possibly get to be able to be satisfied. And none of it ultimately satisfies them. He's painting this image of a group of people who are gorging themselves with food and yet never feel full. They just keep eating and eating and eating. And the great, one of the great penalties of that, one of the great travesties of that, tragedies of that, is that he says right after that, he says Ephraim and Manasseh, who were brothers, Ephraim and Manasseh, they're tribes of Israel. And he says, they devour one another. In other words, here's what happens. When you keep consuming and nothing satisfies you because you're steeped in unrighteousness and God is saying, I'm committed to your righteousness. So I'm not gonna allow you to feel satisfied. You're still gonna feel empty no matter how much you consume. When you do that, you're gonna keep consuming and eventually there's gonna be a competition for resources between you and the other people who are doing the same thing. And if you're consuming and they're consuming and you're consuming and they're consuming, eventually there's not enough for both of you and what's gonna happen? You're gonna be at war with one another and you're gonna devour each other. So there's a breakdown of relationships that happens 
as a result of being unrighteous because you're never satisfied. And when you're never satisfied, you start competing with everyone around you for the things you think you need. And believe me, that doesn't just happen with material resources. It happens with relationships, right? Where you start to feel like if they've got that person's love and affection, I need that person's love and affection. And if they're giving to them, they can't give it to me. And so we compete for that. Anyone who's had more than one kid knows that. You watch your kids compete for your affection. And you're like, no, 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 no. There's enough to go around here. Right? There's enough love for everybody. So those are the things that he says. I'm so committed to your righteousness. I'm going to begin to eliminate those things from your life. Now, here's the thing you can pay attention to. Church, family, right? Is you can start to say, oh, are all these, are these things taking place in my life? Am I feeling a sense of absolutely not being satisfied no matter how much success I seem to have? Is that going on in my life? We can look and we can say, uh, is God eliminating, like as even my best efforts never seem to get the job done, right? I'm trying to build with those dressed stones, but it just seems like they keep getting torn down. If that's taking place, that could be a sign that God's hand of discipline is in your life. Are you following the wrong leaders, right? This is a dangerous question for me to ask right now, right? Are you, are you following leaders who lead you astray? And I don't just mean our staff here, like in our elders at the church. I just mean like, are you following false teachers or are you following, you know, any, anyone who's bearing influence in your life and they're leading you astray? I mean, watch, are they being, are they being cut off? Is their influence being thwarted? That's an indicator that perhaps you're following the wrong leaders and God will cut them off. It's an indicator of discipline in our own lives that God is doing that. All right, so the first thing in these chapters is that God is committed to our righteousness. And not just because we thrive in when we're righteous, but because it glorifies him. I mean, ultimately, let's not make this about us, okay? It's not ultimately about our thriving and that God is committed to us thriving. We do thrive when we live out righteousness because God is so good that he's made it so that when he is glorified, we are satisfied. When he is glorified, in our lives, we thrive. That's our best version of life. And God didn't have to make it that way, did he? God, who's supreme over all things, could have just simply said, I'm in charge and I'm gonna be glorified and it's right for me to be glorified because there's no one else like me. And it doesn't matter whether you thrive when I'm glorified or not. But God is so good that he has determined that when he is glorified, we experience our fullest version of life. When he is glorified by our righteousness, we experience our fullest version of life. That's how good he is. So God's committed to our righteousness. The second thing we see in verses five through 19 of chapter 10 is that God uses the wicked to discipline his people. Let me say that again. God uses the wicked to discipline his people. Now we have to have a category for this, right? So in Israel's case, it's gonna be Assyria. You guys remember Assyria? We've talked about them a lot. They're this foreign army that's coming, this nation that is, that is about to just take over the entire region. And Israel sees them coming and they choose to, you know, fight against them. And there's this whole thing that goes on, a struggle with them. But at the end of the day, here's, if you're an Israelite, here's what you're thinking. Okay, God, we may not be great, but they're way worse than us. How on earth can you be good and use them to discipline us? That doesn't make any sense. It's like you're rewarding wickedness. If you're in Israel, that's exactly how you would have felt. Now, perhaps some of you have felt that way as a part of the church. Perhaps you feel in our society 
that the church has been pushed to the boundaries, pushed to the border, has less and less influence. And perhaps you would feel that maybe wicked, the wicked are thriving. Those who stand in opposition to God's declared will and ways. So what do we do? What's the right response of the church, of the people of God, when the wicked are thriving and the people of God seem to be pushed to the borders, seem to be hindered and hampered at every turn? What's the right response? I'll tell you what we're prone to do. What we're prone to do is to say, God, are you paying attention? God, are you good? God, are you strong enough to do something about this? That's what we're prone to do. But the right thing to do is to say, God, you must have chosen to let the wicked have an upper hand on your people because your people need to be disciplined. So show us where we need to repent. Show us why you've brought about this state of affairs where the wicked seem to be thriving and your people seem to be under the hand of discipline. Show us why. Do you see that, church? If you don't have a category for this, that the wicked are used to discipline God's people, if you don't have a category for that, you will not know what to do when the wicked thrive. But if you have a category for it, then you know what to do. You fall down in repentance and you say, show me, show me how to move forward in repentance. Let's see how he expresses it here to Israel. Look with me at chapter 10, verses five and six. He says this. It says, ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Did you catch that? He says, the staff in the hands of the nation of Assyria is my fury. In other words, when they come and swing their staff and they hit you, guess, who's, guess who that is? He says, that's me. Then he says, against a godless nation, he's talking about Israel, against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. God is saying that he disciplines his people and he uses the wicked to do it. He's not declaring that Assyria is not wicked. In fact, he's gonna go on to say about them, Assyria, you didn't acknowledge that you were the staff in my hand. You failed to acknowledge. In fact, you in arrogance and pride, Assyria, said that we will conquer and tread down everyone beyond, the, beyond what God had, was wanting us to do. And in verse 12, a little word of comfort for God's people. In verse 12, here's what the Lord says. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, so he's talking about his people, when he's finished that work, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So he also says, I use the wicked to punish my people, but they will not last forever. It will not last forever. And that's, is that good? It's good to be reminded of that. All right, so the third thing that we see then in this, in this section of text, chapter nine through 11, is that God's discipline will always produce our good even when that seems impossible. God's discipline will always produce our good even when that seems impossible. This uh, passage made me think of a sledgehammer. So I grabbed one. We're gonna discipline God's, uh, uh, we're gonna demonstrate God's discipline today. Any volunteers? Come up. No, I got one hand over there. Brave soul. Good job. No, I'm not going to call you up. I was thinking about this. As I, as I read these chapters, it really feels like God is taking a sledgehammer to his people, doesn't it? 
This thing is heavy, by the way. I got this from a friend who's way stronger than I am. It really feels like God is taking a just a massive, it just seems destructive at every turn. It just feels like God is just pounding and pounding and pounding on his people. And it's just hard to read. It's, we're prone to think of God's discipline looks a lot like this. That it's not ultimately, it just causes a lot of carnage. But actually, God says, my discipline is not actually much like that. My discipline's actually a lot more, a lot, a lot less like a sledgehammer and a lot more like this. I, I don't know if you can see this or not. This is a, a surgical scalpel. It's actually not. It's an exacto knife I got from Michael's, but they won't sell me surgical supplies. So <laughs> this is the best I could do. But can we imagine it's a surgical scalpel and all the doctors are like, goodness gracious. He says, my discipline's a lot less like this. It feels like this, right? But actually, it's like a surgical scalpel. I'm going in, I'm cutting out all the things that are trying to kill you. And afterwards, some, if you've been through surgery sometimes, when you get cut open and you're recovering, does it feel like this hit you? Yeah, it feels like you just got hit with that. But in actuality, what happened is a, a very skilled craftsman of a surgeon, I hope and pray, went in and took out all the things that were potentially gonna cause your life to end. Went in and cut away all the things that were never meant to be there. And with great skill and great precision, took out just what needed to be took out. That's what God is saying his discipline is like. My discipline's a lot more like a razor than it is like a hammer. I cut away the things in you that ultimately are killing you. And I take them away. And yes, it's discipline, but it's discipline that will help you to live. It will keep you alive. So how do we see that in this text, right? We'll look at Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20. What God does is he preserves a remnant from the nation of Israel. And it's really cool how he does it. So watch, in, in chapter 10, verse 20 through 23, he says this. In that day... The remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them on Assyria, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In truth, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth." Okay, so in case you didn't catch what he's saying there, Israel had had a promise from God and they relied upon that promise. And that promise was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he would bless Abraham so that he might be a blessing to all the nations and he would make him a mighty nation. And so Israel had that promise and they had some other promises from God that were made to David, that David would always have a king on the throne, right? There were some other promises that throughout that God had made to Israel. And so Israel counted upon those promises because they recognize that God is unchanging and that God is always truthful and that God doesn't lie and therefore those promises would be fulfilled. And what God is saying here is, yes, but they're not gonna be fulfilled in the way that you think. I have preserved a righteous remnant among my people. That's what that word remnant means, just a portion of, right? He says, so in, the whole nation is not gonna receive the promises, but the righteous remnant will receive the promises that I have made. And through that righteous remnant, I will send the one who is the ultimate fulfillment of every promise I've ever made. I will send him. He's going to come. 
But in the same way that God is saying to Israel, there will be, I'm, I'm cutting away all the things that need to be cut away from my people. And what will be left is the remnant that is righteous, the remnant that is healthy. He says, I do the exact same thing with you. And he does the exact same thing with you and I, doesn't he? He cuts away all that needs to be taken out of us, all that needs to be taken out that would cause us harm. And he leaves what is healthy and good and righteous. That's what he's doing. You know, man, I've been trying to, to sort of illustrate this razor, not hammer version of discipline in our home. With our kids, one of the things that we've been asking the question a lot of is like, okay, you know, it's, it's easy. Uh, and I'm sure parents, you'd agree with this. It's easy when our kids infuriate us to just want to bring the hammer of discipline, right? And just go, that's it. I've had enough. Six weeks, you're grounded, whatever, you know. But the problem with that is that it's not very specific. It doesn't necessarily instruct our kids in what it is we want to cut away from their life and what we want to leave in place. And so one of the things the man are, are trying to do is actually emulate this idea of God's remnant, uh, leaving a remnant as, as part of his discipline and how he operates that, this, this razor precision. So we, we talk a lot about whenever our kids do something. So for instance, like when one of our kids does something that's disrespectful to someone, rather than just punishing them for that, we try and get really razor sharp about what it is that we can do that will help them understand what it is we want to cut away from their lives. So we'll discipline, we'll say, okay, you're grounded or you're getting a spanking or whatever it may be. You're probably not supposed to say you spank these days in age, but it's against the rules, I think, or something. Uh, so, you know, you make... <laughs> I don't know what I just submitted myself. I'm like looking out going, who's out here today? What? Anyway, uh, so we'll discipline, but we will also say, okay, you know, what, what happened when we disrespected that person? Well, we probably made them feel bad. Why do we make them feel bad? Because we made them feel unimportant or unvaluable. Okay, what can we do to help them feel valuable? What can we do to honor that person that we dishonored? So we'll have them write a note or have them go and say, hey, I wanna tell you what I actually really, honor, what I love about you, right? Um, because what we want them to know is the way that God disciplines is that he disciplines with a razor, not a hammer. That he comes in and he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut out the things that need to be cut out and I'm gonna leave the things that are there to help you thrive. Does, it, does that make sense? Yeah, so if that illustration helps you, if it doesn't, leave it behind, all right? So, Last thing is this, don't fall over. Last thing we see in these sections is this, and it's finally, it's like a word of relief. So everybody take a deep breath and exhale because we get a word of relief here at the end of this section where he says, the perfect righteousness of Jesus will make God's discipline a thing of the past one day. Isn't that good? One day God won't have to discipline us anymore. Oh man, do I look forward to that day. Listen to what he says in, in Isaiah chapter 11. He's gonna talk about Jesus, right? And if you remember in Isaiah chapter six, he talked about this stump. He said he's gonna discipline his people. He's gonna burn and cut the tree down and burn the stump, right? But he's gonna, he's gonna leave the stump in place. The holy seed is the stump, he said in Isaiah chapter six. He's gonna return to that same image now of the stump. And look at what he says. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, all right? That's David, the King David, that's his father, Jesse, right? So J Jesus was in the line of David and in the line of Jesse. So he says he's gonna cause a shoot to come from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And then listen to this description of our King Jesus. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then listen to what happens when Jesus rules and reigns. Here's what happens when Jesus ushers in his reign of perfect peace. The wolf shall, lie down, shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Here Isaiah is telling us that it's not the righteous remnant of Israel that is their hope, but the one who will come from that righteous remnant He will fulfill the righteous requirement of God and that the people of Israel never could. Therefore, through faith in him, they and all the people of the world who would believe in him can be made righteous. And God's discipline will become a thing of the past. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, my hand of discipline has been on you. It's been on you. It's been on you. But ultimately, I will send one who will fulfill all the righteousness that you never could. And because of him, Because of what he does, you can be made righteous. Not by your own effort, but because he is the one. He is the one. And if you'll believe in him, he will make you righteous. And then one day when he ushers in his kingdom of perfect peace, I will no longer discipline you. My hand of discipline will be moved back. I'll never have to do it again. Isn't that good? Sometimes I think, God, are we just gonna continue on the cycle forever where you discipline me? Like I do something wrong, you discipline me because you're a good father, you discipline me. And then I get, I learn my lesson and I, and for at least a while, I seem to be doing well. And then I run right back to it again. Six months, a year later, whatever. And then here comes the discipline again. And then we just keep repeating that cycle. Oh, anybody tired of that? He says, someday, Because of Jesus, righteousness will reign and my discipline will stop. We'll never need it again. I look forward to that day. Oh, I look forward to that day. So what is our right response to God's discipline? What's our right response then? Okay, if that's a bunch of whys and hows about God's disciplinary hand so we can acknowledge it and see it when it's present in our lives so we don't miss it and assume it's something other than what it actually is. How should we respond? Let me give you a couple thoughts. The first is to pray Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, just to regularly pray it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Just make that your prayer. The second thing we should do is we should ask God to cause us to hate our sin and to make us grieve over our sin. I mean, how many of us really grieve our sin? I mean, really, like really think, I hate the fact that I just did that. I hate the fact that I feel that way or look at those things or think that way about that person. 
Most of us don't hate or grieve our sin, but we need to ask God to make our sin grievous to us. The third thing is ask God to help us wait patiently under his hand of discipline. I can tell you, friends, church family, God knows exactly how long to leave his hand of discipline in place. And more often than not, it's gonna feel like that hand of discipline is in place longer than we would want it to be. Usually, God's hand of discipline, because we think, okay, that should be enough now. I think I've learned my lesson. And God, I think, with a great sense of, says, no, not yet, not yet. The discipline continues. So ask God to help us wait patiently under his hand of discipline. And then finally, meditate on and rejoice. And when I say rejoice, I mean out loud, okay? Rejoice out loud in the righteousness of Jesus and look to his reign of righteousness and peace. Know that it's coming. Long for it. Learn to long for it. Learn to say, oh, that day, I can't wait for that day. And to rejoice out loud that Jesus has made it so that we can guarantee it's coming and that it will come. And then when it comes, his discipline will be no more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy and for your discipline. Thank you that you know just how to discipline us. That you do it with perfect wisdom. That you're never in error when you discipline us. And so help us to understand it and to see it when it's happening so that we can respond to it the way we should. Help us to do that. Help us to do that. We are short-sighted. We, we don't see it rightly all the time, Lord. So have mercy on us. Show us when that's the case. And Lord, thank you for this kind word, reminder that Jesus was gonna come and make everything right. Oh, how we needed to see that at the end of this hard, hard passage. So thank you for that. Thank you for the reminder that we have a perfectly righteous king. And that through him, through him, all things will be made right, including us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.